We're gonna swim, bike and run In the corner sun We're gonna swim, bike and run In the corner sun 2021 Thank you, Poncho Man. Welcome, everybody, to Breakfast with Bob, the not-quite-Kona edition. My name is Bob Abbott. We're brought to you by Challenge North America, Credo Try, You Can, Oka One One, Velo Fix, Norma Tech Canyon Bikes, and our Challenge Athletes Foundation right before COVID hit. We sent out 3,921 grants, totaling $5.9 million to Challenge Athletes in the Game of Life through sport. Our guest, someone who I have known of for years and years, but we never have officially spent any time together. She is a two-time ITU world champion. She was number one in the world in 95, 96, and 97. 19 World Cup wins, seven wins alone in 1996. She has a new book out called Hardwired Life, Death, and Triathlon, and I'm sure it's going to be a huge hit. Emma, thank you so much for taking time, and it is seriously an honor to get to spend time with you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bob. I've um, been meaning to, well, I've been watching these shows for a long time and I've always um, wanted to be involved and I thought I would um, contact you when I had something worthwhile to talk about and and my career to talk about. So uh, here we are. Perfect. So first of all, take take me back. Were you runner, swimmer, cyclist growing up? What What were your sports? When I was growing up, I was very much a runner. So um, I think it was very obvious to everyone in triathlon that um, I had to learn to swim. I, I spent most of my time um, from the age of about eight at school, running for school. So it was cross country and athletics. And it was sort mm-hmm. of, you know, four eights and 15s on the track and things like that. And I was actually a pretty good team player. So over here, um, you know, I could play games like softball and netball and um, but I wasn't a great team team person so I actually got myself banned from sports because every time I lined up to play a game I was playing to win but all my teammates were in there for fun I like I'd never considered that as a, as a child that you did sport for fun I thought you won you went in there to win exactly. so I managed to, <laughs> yeah. so I managed to get myself banned from team sports which was was probably a good thing the school could see that and they said, just do your running. And it wasn't until um, I was about 20, 19 or 20, that I actually saw a triathlon on TV and I thought I thought it looked good. And I, I always had this dream of, of going to the Olympics. And so, yeah. you know, at that stage, triathlon still wasn't an Olympic sport. So it was sort of just an idea of, of doing something. But um yeah, I took up triathlon probably about a year later. And, um, you know, it's, that was back in the day when Australian triathletes were really strong. So you'd all be very f- familiar with McKeeley Jones. We worked out that um, we had the best triathlete in the world. And if I raced well here, I would do well overseas. So that was sort of how it started. So yeah, you, you're one of the few athletes who represented Australia in both running and in triathlon, right? You under yeah. 20 national championships, 1500 meters and 3000 and representing, representing Australia in two different sports is, is pretty darn cool. So your first triathlon, 1993, you're seven minutes down out of a <laughs> 700 meter swim and you still won the race. And, and what did your dad say to you after that? Yeah, so my first race, so I, I was getting to the stage and, and this is quite a, um, a common problem in sport when you transition from junior to senior sport you can be a a, a pretty good handy junior athlete but suddenly when you're a senior athlete you've got to suddenly knock 30 seconds off a 3k time to be Mm -hmm. competitive so I'm um, I'm not a patient person very frustrated um, by things you know slow progress irritates me and my dad could see that I was being frustrated with my running yeah and he saw, he was really into triathlon and dad was also working at Nike. So he was very involved in, in the sports industry. And this new sport of triathlon was continuously popping up in Australia. You'd, you know, there'd be an article in the papers, there'd be something on TV, people would be talking about it, there'd be a local race. And it was becoming more of a thing, like more of a sport. Yeah. And dad said to me, why don't you try a triathlon? And I said, oh, what, the swim, bike, run thing? And dad said, yeah. And I thought, well... How hard can that be? You know, swim, bike, run. I'm sure I can do that. Yeah. So we local race, sprint race, 750-metre swim. 
Uh, as it turns out, it was horrendous. And I've never been so disorientated in my life. Got out of the water and I remember Dad yelled out, seven minutes down. And I thought, wow, that's a, that's a really long time. So I got on my bike and I rode as fast as I could. And I, I just found the whole thing chaotic because I came from a running background where you knew exactly where everyone was. You either ran around in a circle or you ran around on a cross-country course. And I got to the end of the bike and I, I had no idea what, whether I'd done well or whether I'd done poorly or whatever. So, you know, still obsessed with winning. I just thought, well, the only way I can work it out is I need to chase down every female athlete. And as I pass her, I need to know if she's winning or not. So as I passed the athletes, I asked her, are you winning? And, you know, everyone said no. So I'm like, oh, so chase the next one down. Are you winning? I finally got to a girl that when I asked her, are you winning? She said, yes. I said, oh, good. And I went past her and I won. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that was my introduction to triathlon. So, yeah, that's a very long-winded way of saying that's how I got into triathlon. And I, I wasn't convinced when I walked away from that race because to me I was like well I just escaped a major defeat there because you know anything in sport is a, is a defeat if you don't win um, but my father's very black and white and he obviously looked into times and he must have bought magazines you couldn't google in those days and um, he said to me a couple of days later that he thought I was the best triathlete in the world and that's that sort of kicked off my career. <laughs> wow. And, and he also said we're 18 months out of the world in yeah. Wellington, New Zealand. If you learn to swim and train, you'll be the best in the world. Yeah. So I wasn't completely convinced at this dinner table conversation because I, you know, he might have thought I'd won, but I knew what was going on in that race. And that was, to me, a panic. Right. I had been absolutely <laughs> demolished in the swim. Managed to get a bit of ground back on the bike, obviously, and the run had been very, very good. And I sort of said, oh, well, what distance do they run internationally? And Dad said, well, you've got to double every distance. And I said, what? So I'm 14 minutes behind out of the water? And Dad said, oh, well, don't worry about that. That's a detail we need to, to, to clear up. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. He said, I think you're world class in, you're definitely world class in running because you, you know, you've run in for Australia, yeah. you've done some world cross country events. He said, I think your bike shows potential to be world class. And with two out of the three international levels in individual sports, he said, we need to minimize the damage on the swim. And I've looked at the calendar and there's a race. The World Championships are in Wellington in 18 months' time. And he said, I think we should qualify for the Australian team, stay home, just work on your swim and work on your cycling and maintain your running and we'll go to Wellington and we'll aim to win. And that was, that was the big plan. And it, yeah, it was really, it was a really fun time. We had no, no input from the triathlon world. So it was just about us trying to work out the most, the simplest way to attack the world of triathlon and we we managed to pull it off so it and your was dad it was, was coaching you so we initially uh, so dad was at nike and yeah. he asked um we've got a very famous sprinter in australia raylene boyle she was a 200 100 200 meter sprinter and most people dismissed dad as a pushy father who had a daughter who liked sports and she you know it was just all talk People didn't really take me seriously or dad seriously. Raylene did. And so dad said, look, to Raylene, I, th I, think, we, I think we're onto something here. You need to help us find a world-class swim coach that will technically have the patience to work with Emma. And we need a cycling coach and the running is taken care of. So she came up with two people, a lady called Alwyn Barrett, because Everyone else at that point, every other swim coach, we'd walk onto pool deck and say, look, you know, can you help us with our swimming? We need to win a world title in 18 months' time. We've got no real swimming background. And then we got thrown out of pools. <laughs> 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 Don't waste my time, Carney. Yeah. So Alwyn actually took us on. And we also, um, she also connected us with a guy called Harry Shaw, who was 
just a, a real old school cyclist mm-hmm. and he was all about the suffering and the misery and the pain on the bike and riding in um, terrains that are tough rather than um, getting too obsessed with the complications of riding. It was all about just regular, not excessive miles or kilometres, just regular three times a week, get out on your bike two to three hours and, and suffer. So <laughs> You're good at that. Yeah. I was very good at suffering. So, yeah, it was... That was how it started and, you know, then I, I think in my book I talk about how we learned to swim. I was blown away at how bad I was. I was, I was actually quite intrigued that I was that bad at something because I'd, I'd never considered that I was a bad <laughs> sport. Bad at anything, yeah. When it came to sport, you'd never been bad at anything. No, and I just, I'd watch the great swimmers beside me and I'd look under the water and think, I'm sure I'm doing that. But obviously I wasn't. <laughs> that is funny. And so then you do it. You win by over two minutes. You, and yeah. that, I think that was like your first international triathlon when you win at Wellington, win world championship. And did it almost feel like, oh, well, we decided we're going to go win world championships. And we did it. It was like, yeah, it was, it it was... light another fire going, okay, that's step one. Now I, I still know I can get better. It, it was an interesting it's funny looking back I wouldn't recommend kicking off your international racing career in that way because everything sort of came too quickly mm-hmm. and, and and this I, I feel like a bit of an old lady saying that um, but I hadn't really learnt all the intricacies around the sport so we had this plan and things went pretty much to plan I had a few injuries crop up and I had a few little problems and um you know, we had some uh, great people that helped me with open water swimming. So, you know, I went up north in Australia and um, learned about the surf and about moving water and um, <laughs> don't just bob up and down like a cork, um, sort of that <laughs> sort of stuff. And we'd planned everything. We'd even gone down to the point of I was, you know, I needed my equipment and little tricks like someone said to me, well, you need to get a bike sponsor. And I, you know, I saw Karen Smyers rode a Trek bike. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, well, that must be a good bike. So I wrote to Trek Australia and I said, um, I really like your bikes and I'm probably going to win a world title. You wouldn't have heard of me yet, um, but this is what I need. And Trek Australia wrote back and said, thanks very much. We don't sponsor athletes. And I was like, whoa, that's really harsh. So, but I mean, obviously I'd never raced. So I thought, how can I get Trek's attention? I I know, and I put electrical tape, little black electrical tape on every Trek logo. So when I did go to Worlds and win, I thought that'll get Trek US to look at me. So I won Worlds on my logo covered bike and I wrote to Trek US and I said, hey, I love your bikes. I won a world title on them. I'd really like you to sponsor me. And they said, oh, that's, that's really good. Well done. L- glad you love our bikes. We don't sponsor non-Americans. And I was like, wow. So then it became, and this is typical me and my dad, it became an obsession to see if we could crack Trek. So right. I raced, yeah, I raced that first year with all the logos on my bike covered up and did really well. And I actually forced Trek into meeting with me because I was driving them crazy by riding their bike and not allowing the logo to show. So it's sort of, I mean, I've got a little bit sidetracked, but that was the indication of how sure we were that we'd got this right and how sure we were that, no, I'm going to do this. This is how it's going to work. And we need to get, you know, people backing us. And yeah, it was. um, Did they come in? Yeah, Trek did. Trek did. I came to the Chicago Triathlon and got beaten by both McKeely and Karen. Yes. And I was like, oh, God. And they were there watching me. And um, they said, look, we don't care. We just need to get those stickers off your logos. Just come and see us. So I drove over to Wisconsin and signed with them the next day. <laughs> you know what's interesting? is Back then, uh, you had... Craig Alexander and a lot of the athletes, Australians, when you're in Australia to make the decision, hey, for the summer, I'm going to go race somewhere. It's a big deal. 
I mean, you, you got to come to Europe or you got to come to the U.S. and commit. It's not like you're coming for the weekend. You, you're, I remember Crowey and uh, Luke McKenzie were living on air mattresses in a little apartment here in Encinitas. And when McKeeley first came over here with her husband at the time, Pete Colson, they had an apartment they shared with Carol Montgomery. And, you know, they were sort of vagabonds a little bit trying to figure out how to make a living over here. But the U.S. was where, like you said, Trek was like, hey, if you're not American, we're not going to sponsor you. <laughs> but at that point, they were all in on Americans. Did, did you think at some point to come over and, and train out of the U.S. and live out of the U.S.? Did that ever enter? I know it was it was a very so when I so obviously I went to Worlds in Wellington and I won mm-hmm. and the ITU at that stage so pretty much for my whole triathlon career, the ITU, which is now World Triathlon and Ironman Corporation, was suing each other and counter-suing each other. Yes, they were. So, <laughs> yeah. So I came along, had no idea about the history and the heritage of triathlon. I just I knew of Mark Allen um, because he was a Nike athlete and I'd seen him at Dad's office. You know, yeah. I'd seen posters of him. I hadn't actually seen him. So I knew that there was this famous race in Hawaii and I didn't know about the drafting and the non-drafting and the whole, um, I knew there was an American circuit, but so when I won worlds, Les McDonald at the ITU got hold of me and said, right, what are you going to do? And I, my response was, I want to go to the Olympics. And so then the agreement was made that I would race world triathlon events or ITU events. Mm -hmm. And that very much put me on the outer with the, the American circuit because I was one of the new kids on the block that didn't understand that um, non-drafting was, you know, the heart and soul of triathlon. And, you know, I, looking back, I can see how I would have irritated the, the real stalwarts. I remember I saw Scott Tinley and he said to me that the ITU isn't the boss of triathlon. And I, and I sort of thought, oh, okay, so he must be an Ironman supporter. So I just was like, okay, I'm either going this way and these people are with me or they're not. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, when I signed with Trek, the, the plan was to race Hawaii because I've always wanted to race Hawaii. And um, I was never able to do that because of what happened with my heart and my career. Right. So there was always the intention to race the American races, but... My short, my career was really cut short, so it, it wasn't, it didn't really eventuate. But in those early days, it was very much you're either in or out. <laughs> well, and especially at that point, because triathlon had, I think, had just been accepted into yeah. the Olympics 2000, which was yeah. going to be in Sydney, you know, in your your home country. And meanwhile, from 95 to 97, you're busy winning 12 straight ITU races and being, you know, the best in the world. Um, so you know you you had a lot more going on, right? You're you're you did you uh, didn't win world champs in ninety five ninety six, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but you, because you have you know, a virus, right? Talk yeah. talk talk a little bit about you know after winning uh, you you won heading into the Olympics. Did you feel that there was a plan on how you make the Olympic team? Because I always felt. In the U.S., we had trials and you went to the games, right? It was, yeah. it was pretty clear yeah. cut. But it seemed like Australia has always been, oh, we're going to pick this person and not this person. Yeah. From your perspective, how did that all lay out? Well, I touch on this in my book. So, yeah, um, yeah the 2000 Olympics. I, so I had this period, 94, I won Worlds. Then yeah. I headed off overseas and I had 95, 96, 97, where I was dominant on the triathlon scene. Yep. Healy turned up in 97 and beat me, <laughs> beat me in Monte Carlo and ruined the parade. <laughs> right, that's right. Yep. Um, but then I won Worlds at the end of the year. Yep, and World Cups too, yeah. Yeah. And so um, it was a very, very dominant period, not only for me, but for Australia as well. 98 started like every other year for me. And I went over to the first World Cup of the series and won it and came home and won the Nationals and like clearly won, you know, won by five minutes. And 
then I never won a major race again. And looking back, you know, that's a really big drop off. That's, you know, from someone who is, is really clearly dominating and big, big wins, not just a little scraping through with a sprint. It was, you know, big, big wins. Yeah. Just suddenly not, not having the ability to win. Now, the whole thing was sort of muddied up by the fact that in 99, I broke my foot. So 98 was a bit of a messy year. I had a few um, losses in there and that was put down to um, illness and the world championships. I had a mechanical and a derailleur cable slip through my bike. So that was me out of the race. Um, and then 99, I had a sore foot going into the first race of the season. And then about halfway through, I felt something in my foot go. <laughs> the pain increased, finished the race and just was like, well, that really hurts. And that was a broken foot. So that put me out for the year. The next race I did was the world championships. So I scraped, I scraped myself onto the podium. McKeeley and I had another great <laughs> battle to the line and I just managed to pip her for third. And so you could look at that and say, well, Maybe I'm just feeling tired, you know, I'm still performing, I'm still meddling, I'm still doing okay. But it was a real fatigue that would hit me with a real rush of loss of energy. And then, you know, obviously in 2000 selection policies and, you know, we all signed <laughs> our life and our rights away to do these selection races. And I was really struggling with fatigue by this time and I'd... I'd um, taken myself up to Sydney and thought maybe I need a change of environment. Maybe I need to work with different swim coaches. Maybe I just need a change. Maybe I'm stale. So I carried on training. And so I've been um, developing a heart condition and we'll get onto that later. Yeah. So my performances were dropping. Didn't matter what I was going to do. They were never going to be as good as they were, but I was still competitive internationally. So we had our selection race and I talk about, I never spoke about it at the time, and um, in my book, because I think whenever you miss out on the selection, whatever you say and whether you're right or wrong in what you say, you're always going to look as if you're a sour athlete Exactly. because it's, it's selection, you know, you're never going to be happy if you're omitted. So the press over here called it a sensational omission when my name was not in the Olympic team. Yeah. And so I had one of the, I've had the, well, it's the longest running appeal in the history of the Olympics in Australia. So it was very clear that there was a bit of shafty stuff going on. So when I wrote my book, I thought, well, I can't, I can't talk about it. I can't talk about the details. So I had it reconstructed by a historian. And um, the historian is, has got all the facts together and she's basically um, reconstructed what happened. And I said to her, I don't want an opinion on it. I just want the facts so the reader can draw their own conclusions. Right. And then my dad ran the appeal. So dad obviously knew what went on. So dad follows from that chapter and talks about his experiences. And it also explains why dad was like he was. And dad was always the protector of us. You know, I'm one of three girls. And so it was... It was, a, it was a manipulation, as you sort of hinted at the introduction to this question, it was a manipulation of the selection policy because the um, Triathlon Australia officials believe that a team, um, a team, I suppose, set up would work and win the Olympic gold medal. Yeah, now, the rest of the world, yeah. Yeah. The rest yeah. of the world knew it was a bike runner's course. And it was, it was actually quite funny. The Americans were, because America never gives away an Olympic gold medal. And that's what I love about America. They, you guys fight for Olympic gold to the death. And that's right. how it should be. It's absolutely. We're not giving you no mystique out there. We're not giving <laughs> yeah, no. you a No, it's, it's everybody no. for them. You're a team, but it's still everybody for themselves. We didn't put yeah. somebody on a team to pull for Glenn Jorgensen. No. In, in 2016. Yeah. Sort of the, the way it should be, and when people have tried to do that, usually yeah. they just jump in down. the swim and they're never there. <laughs> yeah, and the other interesting thing was um, Barb Lindquist was earmarked by Triathlon Australia to be in the pack out of the water, yeah. and Triathlon USA banned the Australian athletes from your Olympic your Olympic selection race. 
So nothing could be constructed in the favour of Australia. And I thought that was a really interesting response from America and a, the proper response, the correct response. It's like, here's the race, race, you get selected or you don't. Right. What was fascinating that year is Mark Lees from Australia raced in that Olympic trials right here. Oh, in he, did. he did. Mark Lees raced. And what's fascinating about it is Ryan Bolton actually during the race, the, you know, because Mark had nothing to gain, but yeah. Ryan Bolton's trying to make the team. So I think there was a few dollars exchanged for Mark to work for <laughs> Ryan, and he ended up making the Olympic team, which, yeah, which is, hey, listen, all's fair. And my feeling was if it was an Olympic trials, there should not have been foreign athletes there. It should have just been the Olympic trials for the, the best Americans. So yeah. it, it was pretty interesting. But Barb ended up, I was doing the announcing for that race for the trials. She didn't make the team. No. She, she, her water bottles on a 100-degree day were not touched. She had not. Wow. Yeah, it was just, but it was one of those things where, you know, sometimes you're the best athlete there, but if you're, you, you don't race correctly, it's still a yeah. tactical event. Mm. You got to do the right stuff. So it was, it was pretty interesting to, to watch when, yeah. you know, the overwhelming favorite did make it acting. And speaking of overwhelming favorites going into the 2000 games, everybody was talking about Aussie men and women sweeping both podiums, right? Everybody was, there was yep. no way you weren't going to get a couple of medals on both sides. I know. It's, it's quite amazing. And I think it's really interesting, and a lot of people have said this, you know, because my book's been read by some administrators of Australian sport. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people have said it's really interesting how that culture, when it's not right, will just seep in and just destroy performances. And, you know, the whole, the whole team underperformed and it's, I don't, triathlon hasn't been the same in Australia since. We could have absolutely lit up those games, first event, first medals decided, triathlon would have been the hero for kicking that off. We had some great results in those games and triathlon could have been a part of it. And right. it, was, it was just a lost opportunity on poor administration and poor athlete care and, you know, the, it, it's just really poor. What's fascinating to me is, you know, I was over there with, and we were staying at McKeeley's and the fact that she got the silver and all we, even though the woman who beat her ended up going positive for drugs a number of years later, yeah, uh, Bridget McMahon, McKeeley never said, hey, uh, she was always like, I won the silver and I'm very proud of my performance. And, yeah. and I yeah, always McKeeley. felt, Sorry. I was going to say, I was going to say, in going and speaking of Australia, again, for 2004, here's McKeeley, who won the tester race in Athens the year before the Games, and ends up not making the team, which put her into Ironman, right? So I just feel like Australia, during that era, probably had the best athletes, but mm. they certainly didn't get the medals they should have gotten. And I think a mm. lot of it was administrative and people overthinking. Let people race. Yeah, it's... It's really odd. I mean, McKeeley, you'd have to say she's the greatest female triathlete, the way she's her longevity and her range across events. And, you know, there are only a few athletes. I mean, number one key to being an elite athlete is to never underestimate your opponent. But McKeeley was the type of athlete that I had to be on top of my game because Always. she was ready to pounce everywhere. <laughs> well, and what's fascinating is, is, is being close to McKeeley I yeah. watched during the, that era where she didn't have a lot of confidence in her swimming, right? She wow. felt if it was a non-wetsuit race, oh my God, I can't stay with Karen Smyers if it's a non, you know, that type of thing. And she went back to Australia to work with her old coach, her old swim coach to basically become a better swimmer so that no matter what happened, because you know yourself as somebody where the swim, when it became draft legal, you yeah. had to be up there. Right, yeah. you had to be there out of the swim, or the race was over. Yeah, it's um, it did it definitely changed the changed the dynamics of of racing, and it's um, you know that, and I, I think it also changed the mentality of triathlon Australia as well. And mm. um, there were some coaches, most triathlon coaches in Australia come from a swim background, so they're always going to have that focus. And there's a lot of um, it's, it's like they've got blinkers on. 
there's a lot of turning a blind eye to the importance of the bike and run. And, you know, if you can't run fast or if you can't go and hold your own in the state championships for, a, you know, a three or a 5K, you're really not going to be a world-class international triathlete. Right. And the swim is very, very important and you can completely mess everything up if you screw up the swim. But also if you can't bike and run, you know, you've got nothing. Yeah. <laughs> So could you, when you were not chosen for the team, could you even watch the games? No. The Olympic no, I was, I was asked to commentate um, TV and radio. I was asked to attend. Les McDonald told me that I was a bad sport because I didn't watch because I wasn't in the VIP tent. Um, I said, Les, have you been back to watch an Ironman race? Because <laughs> yeah, right. he was being sued by Ironman. Yeah. And he's like, oh, it's not the same. I said, I think it is. I think it is the same, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so, so I accused him of his bad sportsmanship. But, um, no, I, I couldn't do anything. I didn't even speak about it. So this is the first time it's been spoken about <laughs> in my book. So after that, and it seems like you react to when things are, when things are not right, you just train harder. And do you think that led to the heart issues? Just the, oh, just God, it's the heart like, issues... Yeah, the heart issues, no, there's no definitive answer to heart issues. So my performance drop was pro progressively getting worse and worse and worse. So despite qualifying for the Sydney Games um, and, you know, meddling at the World Championships the yep. year before and, and, and being still competitive internationally, my performances started to drop probably from 2001 to 2003, really a lot. So, if, you know, dropping out of the top 10 and finishing races was becoming difficult and this fatigue that sort of hit me was particularly bad at the start of a race. So my swimming dropped off and then my ability to um, accelerate hard on the bike, which took a sudden burst of energy, um, that I lost that and then I lost speed on the run because I didn't have that full ability to use my heart or my heart wasn't functioning properly. So it wasn't until 2004, beginning of 2004, I thought I'll take myself back to the AIS, Australian Institute of Sport, and I'll do some work up there with some specialist coaches and I'll get myself back in shape and see if I can qualify for Athens. Right. And I was still in the mix, you know, like I was still, <laughs> I was still okay. And went up to the AIS, trained well. Um, things felt like they were coming back together, but I never really had the issues in training because in training you do a good warm-up and then you get yourself prepared for the main set and then you can do the main set. And it's, it's quite a controlled, it's not like racing where you can suddenly be going flat out, suddenly easy, suddenly hard. You know, a racing is, is unpredictable and it was very unpredictable for my heart to manage the sort of changes in pace. So, um, yeah, I got myself overseas with the Australians in the Edmonton World Cup and it was the Thursday before the race, hopped in the pool and was just doing a, you know, pre-race session and there was a couple of hard efforts put in there and I pushed off the wall and I felt my heart, I felt a, a, a wash of fatigue and I thought, oh, now in training? And then I felt my heart race in my chest like a panic. And I thought, why would my heart be racing? Anyway, I forced myself to finish the session and I was actually approaching cardiac arrest. So my heart condition had, had deteriorated to the point where my heart was now becoming unstable. And um, that was basically the end of my triathlon career. I ended up in hospital for 10 days and my heart failed every normal heart test because you know it's too big too slow um it doesn't have a neat pump because it's a bit worn out so they to diagnose me was quite difficult so they sort of got me safe and then sent me back to australia i mean you're resting when you're asleep your your resting heart rate was like 21 beats yeah. per minute there was a <laughs> yeah i I was doing some testing up at the AIS and they had this, they were doing some work on altitude training mm -hmm. and the scientists at the AIS were trying to decide whether you sleep at altitude and train at sea level mm. is the way to go rather than over fatiguing the body and training and racing at altitude. 
So they constructed this, uh, this house, altitude house, in the um, physiology lab. So mm-hmm. you'd be at, I think it was about, it must have been 3,000, oh, I can't remember because I'm going to say the number wrong. But anyway, it was at altitude in yes. the house and it had a right. double door and everything and you weren't allowed to open both doors otherwise you all you know shot down to sea level so you had to be really careful when you went in and out of this house and we used to sleep in there and we used to sleep in there with our heart rate monitor and there'd be a physiologist outside the house all night monitoring our heart rates every hour yeah. and at one point in the night i know they checked brad bevan and they also checked to see if i was still alive because our heart rates had dropped. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, it was 28 at the time, and they say that altitude elevates your heart rate by six or seven or something. And so they said, we, <laughs> your heart was beating every three seconds. And I was like, really? Hmm, okay. Oh, my God. But if you think about it, athletes <laughs> from that era, Dave Scott, Greg Welch, yourself, were sort of guinea pigs. People really didn't know what the effect of training, you know, swim, bike, run training was going to be uh, this first generation of triathletes, right? So it's, yeah. Welch has had heart issues. Dave Scott has had heart issues. I'm sure there's others. So it's, um, you know, it's endurance athletes, dehydration and congenital. You, nobody really knows, right? What causes yeah. it, but it's, you know, you're not alone. It's something that's out there. We've seen that with a lot of age group athletes as well. Yeah, and um, so this was 2004, and when my cardiologist, um, so I've got a right ventricular cardiomyopathy, so there's a patch of scar tissue on my right ventricle wall, and I talk about it in my book, and my cardiologist gives his professional explanation of what happened and um, of of the problem that I have. And they'd been very suspicious that elite athletes had this problem, but up until, or, or could develop this problem, but up until I presented with a clear case of it, it had all been European males. Right. <laughs> so then I turn, <laughs> then yeah. I turn up an Australian female. So completely the other side of the world and completely you yeah. know, the opposite sex. And so he um, wrote a couple of articles on it and have done some research on it. And they think possibly I'm either predisposed to this problem or um, it was training. Or in 1996, when I raced the world championships and came second, I went into the race, which what I thought was a chest infection. Mm-hmm. And they now think it was a chest virus. And so it created some sort of damage to, to my system that can then manifest. Right. And I think that's really interesting now, given um, COVID, because right. while you may be able to recover from COVID, it's really, really important to avoid getting the disease because they don't know what it does to vital organs. Exactly. And well, and yeah. the other thing for me, just looking at someone like, you know, like a Greg Welch, who would race the American season during our summers and then would go home and do International Triathlon Grand Prix and do yeah. these, you know, these, uh, he's doing eight hour races and then he's doing 20 minute races over and over again so basically in 10 seasons he's racing 20 seasons so you wonder what the ramifications of of all of that and especially all of the heat and who knows if he had a virus when he traveled or raced yeah there's so much you ended up getting a defibrillator in october 2004 and at, at the same time you're you're dealing with all of that. And then in 2006, your sister Jane passes away. I mean, this had to be such a tough time for you because your outlet is sport and not having sport when you're dealing with all the depression that comes along with that. that, that how difficult was that for you to deal with? Well, I, a lot of people read my book and say, whoa, that's your life is, has been really, really tragic. <laughs> and I'm like, really? I just thought this is what happened in life. You know, you, along the way, you lose great people mm-hmm. and along the way, things don't fall your way, but you try and make the best of every situation. And, and I come from a family where my, um, my father's very old school. So right. his, 
you know, you just carry on. You don't talk about it. You just carry on. So I was brought up to just carry on and my world completely fell apart. So, but I didn't talk about it. So my, my, well, first of all, I had a very public admission from a team, which everyone else other than the four selectors in Triathlon Australia thought I should have raced. Then I had a cardiac arrest, survived it. And also the, the situation around that was, was pretty poor as well. I was ended up on the side of the road, left out of the team bus and, you know, all that sort of stuff was not great. Um, then I was forced to have an implant and someone who's very, very fit suddenly has a, a lump of metal in their chest and that's, you know, that's oh. keeping you alive. That's, that's actually quite offensive. Yes. And every brochure you get, you know, you, you're on the, in the brochure for your defibrillator there's a picture of a lot of old people that look really sick <laughs> and right. I was 34. You right. know, it's like a, it's a really mental thing you've got to get over. And then um, shortly after my defibrillator implant, my older sister Jane was diagnosed with cancer and, you know, she lasted five months from diagnosis to death and she left behind five month old baby and her husband. And that was just awful. And yeah, I was I was close with Jane. Jane, I always said, was the nice one of us three, because she was, um, it was quite funny. She used to say to me, "I don't know how you race and how you're so mean to people when you race." And I said, "Well, I've got to win." And Jane was like, "I don't don't know how you can be mean to people." And then she ended up being a lawyer. Paid <laughs> <laughs> to be mean. Yeah, <laughs> big bucks to be mean. So. Um, she never understood my argument back on that. But, um, yeah, that was really sad, really, really sad. And that's, yeah, just Jane said to me, because she knew she was going to die and no one else in the family accepted she was going to die because that's, we don't die. Right. And I felt like I'd used up all the good, good luck in the family. And Jane said to me that she had the easy job of just dying and I had to live with it for the rest of my life. And I thought that was a really, at the time, it was like, well, those words really hit me. But it's, um, True. her job wasn't easy, though. That was awful. Oh, all of it. So should governing bodies be doing more to do e, you know, uh, ultrasound and, and do things to test heart health of these elite athletes? Well, the, the National Federations now, and I think World Triathlon requires it, that you have to have an ECG every two years and they have mm. to be regularly checked. But having said that, you know, when I was diagnosed, of course, my family, because in case there's a hereditary problem, my family was all checked and screened and see if they had any problems like I had. And everyone was given the all clear. And eight years later, my sister Claire was found um, in a swimming pool in cardiac arrest. So Claire was dragged out and Claire did a really, she did a really, if you can call it, a good job on herself. And she ended up in a coma for two and a half days because she was unconscious and they had trouble reviving her. And um, Claire now has a defibrillator, but they can't find a link between Claire's heart issue and my issue. So we've either uncovered a new um, genetic problem mm. or there's an absolute fluke and we have different problems, same solution um, in our hearts. So yeah, Claire's got a defibrillator now. Now are you allowed to, can you, what do you do? What can you do now? <laughs> because it's not training. It's a lifestyle. It's who you are. What, what are you it allowed is. to do? Can you go race if you wanted to? Will they allow well, you I, I've got a couple of stories as, as always. So my cardiologist, you know, sat me in the bed and said, right, you can never exercise again. And I just, I don't think I even looked at him. I said, okay, well, just shoot me. And he was like, what? And I said, well, I don't do triathlon because I was good at it. I did triathlon because I love the lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I love swimming, biking and running. And this is what I do. And he said, well, we'll have to look at it. This device is here to save your life, not to allow you to continue to exercise. And my argument back was, look, if the heart is a muscle and you keep telling me it's a muscle, Surely it's like if you tear your hamstring and you sit on the couch for six weeks and get off the couch, 
you know that the hamstring is still going to have some problems. You need to work it through its injury and you need to give it treatment and you need to keep ticking it over and it will be better after six weeks. And he said, yeah, good theory, Emma, but we don't know because no one's tried. And I said, right, let's try. So the first (laughs) defibrillator I had only lasted five years. I set it off so many times. (laughs) When you set that thing off. Yeah, it's shocking. But to be fair to me, before everyone thinks I'm mad, be fair to me, the settings were wrong. So when you put a device in someone, it's got all the settings set up for, you know, 90-year-old Emma Carney, not 34-year-old. So I had a setting on there, for example, that was called a timeout setting. So the device would sit there. It just monitors all the time. So I'd go for a jog and it would go, oh, heart rate's elevated. Heart rates, 120, 120, 130, 120. And then it would, after 20 minutes, just go, no, it's still there, bang, and restart my heart. So I'd end up on the floor. So it wasn't the fact that I was in an arrhythmia. It was just going off figures and data. So we've had those settings taken off. So so I used to come into my (laughs) cardiologist with a grazed knee and say, prof, you've got to get this right. This is killing me. <laughs> so the settings are now very specific. Okay. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm getting old and the heart will obviously deteriorate. So you, you don't, they've never given me a definitive answer on whether, you know, one day I will actually have a heart is that unstable that I can't go for a bike or a run or a swim with my athletes and stuff. And are you loving coaching? Yeah, I, I love coaching. So my, um, my relationship with TA, well, I, I find it frustrating because triathlon in Australia now, we're no longer leading the world. And I don't think a country suddenly loses talents. I think there must be something that is not right in, in the way the talent is looked after or cared or coached right. or identified. Right. And um, you know, I've just, just said I'm getting old and I don't have much patience. So I decided, well, rather than sit and talk about it, what you can do and what you can't do, and, um, you know, my ideas have always been sort of different to the triathlon world over here, I thought, well, I'll, I'll coach my own athletes and just get results because that's what it's about. So that's that's what I'm doing now. And we're <laughs> I've actually also found another athlete who I think is going to be very good, and her name's Emma. Emma Hogan. So, yeah, because you know how everyone's obsessed with data these days? One of the most compelling pieces of data in Australian triathlon is if your name is Emma, you are most likely going to be, end up a ITU world champion. Emma Moffat, <laughs> Emma Snowsill, Emma Emma Carney. Carney. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, and when it comes to Emma's, you have to remember that the original is always the best and that's always Always. <laughs> So when, when did the book come out and can people just get it on, on Amazon? Yeah, yeah. The book is available on Amazon. So you just, um, you know, Google Emma Carney autobiography. And it's, um, it's a, so I kept diaries throughout my career. So mm. I, it's, a lot of people are surprised at the detail and um, just the outline of, of what it's like in the background of sport. So it's not just the front end that you see, the good times. There's a lot of very ordinary times. And, you know, having written the book, I was quite surprised at how often I wasn't well. And, you know, maybe that is that travel, that, that Aussie problem we have. We're, we're on the wrong side of the world. So when I, yeah, when I coach now, I try and get rid of all, that, all the problems and all the mistakes I made because there was, there was a lot. It's interesting because there's, I look at different athletes, sometimes an, an athlete who had a lot of injuries, sometimes they'll go, okay, I want to make sure I, I make sure my athletes stay healthy. That's number yeah. one. I'm going to learn from my mistakes. Then other athletes are, hey, I was successful despite everything bad I did. I'm <laughs> following that path. And we've seen both, right? I, I'm like, Luke Von Lerde, yeah. he, he had a lot of injuries. And if you look at the athletes he coaches now, they don't. He's he sort of learned from his going too hard too often to keep his athlete. The key is getting the starting line, getting the yeah. starting line healthy. So yeah, it is. And consistency. People, uh, 
have, who have, who do not know your story, it is it is amazing, and it's funny how we were sort of in the same universe, but in different on different planets for for a lot of years. Yeah. And, yeah. and if you look back at you know Makili Jones and Emma Carney and Jackie Gallagher and Loretta Harrop and Nicole Hackett and Emma Snowsill and Miranda Carfrey and Emma Moffat and Aaron Dempsey, I mean that era of just is that all the great female triathletes that have come out of Australia. It's, it's pretty amazing. And a lot of that starts with you. Yeah. Well, McKeeley was the real pioneer. You know, you'd have to say it. she was yep. someone that I looked to when I won worlds in Wellington, she was already a two-time world champion. Yes. And um, yeah, I, I talk about that early on and you know, McKeeley and I hardly ever spoke and we were, we were just really cutthroat competitors right. and now it's fine. I, I actually think McKeeley and I should run some training camps and I reckon we'd get crowds along just to watch us argue about how we should coach. <laughs> so, I mean, people, you think about it. I mean, Dave Scott and Mark Allen could not be friends during their career. Yeah, yeah. Right? Maka and Crowey certainly were not friends. <laughs> it, it, it's a small pie at the top, right? If you win, yeah. you pretty much get everything. If you're second, you're second. In, in, in endurance sports, there's not a lot. So it's not like golf where you can finish 50th and still be a multimillionaire. Exactly. Yeah. So it, there's always been that type of thing where if, if you want to go to the Olympics, if you want to win world championships, McKeeley's in your way. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. And, um, and it was quite interesting because the media over here, they clearly had the two best female triathletes in the world at the time. Mm-hmm. Yet, you know, and they also had Greg Welsh and um, Brad Bevan and, yeah. Greg and Brad could have this really macho, you know, fight in a race and then be best mates. But, um, you know, the media would always sort of say to me, oh, McKeeley said this about you. What's your response? And I was always like, there's never a response about McKeeley. I respect her as a competitor. If you want to ask, if you want to know what she's doing, you ask McKeeley. You know, it was, it was a really different way of approaching the male and the female competitive rivalry. Right. And, uh, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, McKeeley's... I'd, I'd really love to do a camp one day with her, even if we did it over over in America and everyone can boo me and cheer her. <laughs> you, you know, what? Uh, I obviously go back a lot of years with McKeeley and yeah. just watching her uh, mature as an athlete and just as a role model and getting young girls into the sport yeah. um, and all and and guiding a uh, a visually impaired woman to a Paralympic gold medal. 16 yes. years after getting the silver medal in 2000. That was brilliant. Yeah, it was brilliant. Emma, mm-hmm. thank you so much for taking so much time. Again, the book, Hardwired, Life, Death, and Triathlon. It's thank by you. Emma Carney, who has been kind enough to spend the better part of an hour chatting about the greatest, what I still consider is the greatest sport on the planet, triathlon. Absolutely. Absolutely. Don't you think? Thanks for so, having me. Yes. Absolute pleasure and honor to be on your show. Emma Carney has been our guest again, Breakfast with Bob, not quite Kona edition. Thanks everybody for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. Emma, you're the best. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Bye.